Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. How does a young black woman born in racially charged and segregated Birmingham, Alabama in 1954 find the confidence and the belief to know that she could grow up to be one of the world's most powerful leaders? She's been called one of the most influential women in the world in moments of national crisis from 9-11 to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. She was involved in some of the most controversial decisions in our nation's history. And the decisions she made will be debated by historians for generations to come. She was Stanford University's first female non-white provost, the first black woman to serve as national security advisor, and the very first black woman to become secretary of state in 2004. Here's a woman who accomplished her dreams without losing sight of her commitment to always be true to herself. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Dr. Condoleezza Rice. I know that I could have been better at almost everything that I've done. I could have been better as National Security Advisor. I'm sure of it. Maybe there are questions I didn't ask. Maybe there are things I didn't probe. I could have been better. I don't have any doubt about that. I could have been better at Secretary of State. But I think I did okay. Under the circumstances, I think I did okay. When I think of who I am, I think of myself as a black woman from Birmingham, Alabama, who was fortunate enough to find what she was really passionate about doing, who loves her country despite its flaws, maybe because of its flaws, and who keeps at the center of her heart parents who gave me every opportunity that they possibly could. When I'm asked, well, how did it feel to be the first black fill-in-the-blank or the first woman fill-in-the-blank, uh, I often say, look, I can't go back and recreate myself as a white male and tell you how it would have felt if I'd been a white male. Um, I'm a package. I'm Condoleezza Rice. I'm five, seven and three quarters. I'm black and I'm female, and it all kind of goes together. I'm very proud of the fact that our country has come as far as it has so that we're talking about the first black female secretary of state. Who would have thought it 40 years ago when uh, I was growing up in Birmingham, Alabama? I'm the descendant of slaves, just a few generations removed. This country has a terrible birth defect of slavery. And I don't believe that we are now, nor do I think we're ever likely to be, certainly not in my lifetime, race blind. It just is too much to ask, given our own history. But the nice thing is that uh, we no longer have preconceptions about who somebody is or what they might do 
because they look a certain way. In order to know who I became, you had to know John and Angelina Rice, my parents. They were extraordinary, ordinary people, I've called them. Mom was a school teacher. Daddy was a high school guidance counselor, later on a university administrator. And I think they instilled in me a sense that I could do just about anything that I wanted to do. And I think the fact that they raised a little girl who believed that she could do great things, but was always searching for what might that be, was really a terrific act of parenting. I do think that they gave me limitless horizons, and that's probably the best thing parents can give kids. I'm fortunate that my father, who was a Presbyterian minister and a theologian, always challenged me to think about my faith so that uh, when things are difficult, I have that to turn to. When your intellect can't explain uh, the death of your mother, for me, when she was 61, I was 30, or the death of your father when he was in his late 70s. Those are the kinds of trials and tribulations that can only be overcome by faith. It's very difficult to separate myself and my evolution from the circumstances of Birmingham. Uh, first of all, it was a scary place in 1962 and 1963. All of those images that are now pretty far back in our nation's uh, historical memory were very much the memories that shaped who I am. Birmingham was the most segregated big city in America. This was a place where the public safety commissioner, Bull Connor, along with, of course, the governor, George Wallace, was known to be just hardcore segregationist. As a little girl growing up, I didn't have any white classmates, any white teachers. We rarely interacted with white people. But Birmingham also had another side, which was the side that was a group of people who were determined to overcome, a group of people who were determined to prove themselves despite the circumstances. We had ballet lessons, and we had French lessons. We even had lessons in etiquette, what fork to use. So the parents were determined to prepare their kids to be really excellent. It also had extremely high expectations. You were always told you might have to be twice as good, and that wasn't actually a matter for debate. It was sort of a fact that was stated. And there were no excuses for poor performance in school or for poor performance at anything. And so it was a wonderful combination of a community that was in some ways so segregated that they rigorously controlled the messages that we received. And that message was, it may be a very racist place, and you may not be able to control your circumstances, but you can sure control how you react to your circumstances. And here's how you react. You're twice as good, you work hard, you do everything better than they might do it. In 1962, 1963, when the civil rights movement really centered in Birmingham and when things began to get very violent, it was a place that really did evoke a lot of fear. Knight Riders and Ku Klux Klan and all of those images. Birmingham was beginning to be known as Bombingham because there were so many unsolved bombings, including one in our neighborhood. And of course, in September of 1963, when the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed and those four little girls were killed, everybody knew at least one of them. Denise McNair had been in my father's kindergarten. I'd played with her. She was a little friend. Then it was harder for parents to really separate their kids and somehow shield their kids from the awfulness of what was going on in Birmingham. I just remember that night asking my parents if I could sleep in their bed 
which probably was uh, a sign of how really scared I was. And at that point, I think they just held us close. You know, they, they just tried to put their arms around us, and there was always a bedrock feeling that uh, it was going to be okay in the loving embrace of our parents and our community. I do think that those of us who grew up in segregation were able to spot at 100 paces when somebody was underestimating you. And when somebody underestimated me, it made me want to prove them wrong. A lot of what goes on in Washington and in the White House is just turfiness and turf consciousness, and so you have to try to not take it personally. But I knew that I was younger by maybe a couple of decades than uh, many of the people with whom I was going to be working, especially the second time around when I was National Security Advisor. I wasn't on guard for whether somebody underestimated what I could do. That isn't the way that those lessons come into play. The way that it comes into play is that if someone comes too close or steps on something that you think is your responsibility, then you're not at all shy about saying, move away, get out of my way. And I think that toughness in the White House really does come from uh, being a young kid who was always determined that nobody was going to underestimate you and you were going to do what you were going to do. And I can remember going to President Bush on at least one occasion and saying, if that person ever does that to me again, then one of us is resigning. One of the things that I often tell my students who want to plan every step in life, they want to know what they're going to be doing when they're 30 or 40 or even 50 years old, it usually comes in the form of the question, how do I get to be who you are? And they mean, how do I get to be Secretary of State? And I say, well, you start out as a failed piano major and you go from there. You can't plan every step in life. I was always going to be a great concert pianist. I was studying piano from the age of three. I could read music before I could read. I studied, I worked hard, I won a couple piano competitions. My sophomore year in college, when I was a piano major, I went off that summer to the Aspen Music Festival School. And I met 12-year-olds who could play from sight what it had taken me all year to learn. I was about 17, and I thought, oh my goodness, there's a whole world out there of talent that I will never match. And I really didn't want to teach piano, and I thought I'm going to end up teaching 13-year-olds to murder Beethoven, or you know, maybe I'll play piano bar someplace, but I'm not headed to Carnegie Hall. And I was really pretty devastated by it because my entire life had been aimed at being a great concert pianist. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. So I went off to my parents, who lived about five minutes from the university, and mom and dad, I need to talk to you. And my father said, to what are you changing your major? I said, well, I don't know, but I'm changing my major. He said, you don't know what you want to do with your life. And this was kind of a shock, because my parents had always been very supportive about all of my decisions. And I said, well, it's after all my life. And they said, yes, but it's our money. Can you find a major? So I tried very hard 
nothing stuck. And finally, I wandered into a course in international politics, and it was taught by a Soviet specialist, a man named Joseph Corville, Madeleine Albright's father. And it was like finding love. I'd found my passion. I knew I wanted to do things Russian. I wanted to do things international. I remember the very lecture that led me there. It was about Joseph Stalin and the Byzantine politics of the late 20s in the Soviet Union. And uh, suddenly I knew what I wanted to do. And I'm quite convinced that a lot of my success has been because I was doing something that I loved to do. And I wanted to get up and I wanted to read more and know more about the Soviet Union than anybody else. And so it wasn't a chore to go to school and it wasn't a chore to learn Russian and it wasn't a chore to work hard. It was uh, a joy. One of the hardest things to explain is the role of serendipity in life because it's the one thing you can't control. It's very hard to say to my students sometimes, you know, I was a bit lucky. I was a bit fortunate that I was in a seminar at Stanford in the early 1980s when a man named Brent Scowcroft came out to speak and I asked him a relatively rude question which he actually didn't take offense at but kind of liked my spunk and so he came up and we started to talk and he became a real mentor for me. He asked me to join something called the Aspen Strategy Group which was a group of foreign policy establishment people who met every year in Aspen for several days and that's kind of how I got guided into the foreign policy establishment. I do think that your life is some combination of what you do and what you were meant to do, some combination of working hard and having the right skills and listening for that little voice uh, that tells you, no, that isn't it, you're going in the wrong direction. There have been times when I didn't know if I was headed in the right direction. And I went through a period of time where I didn't want to do a PhD. I thought of PhDs as people who sat in rooms and wrote books that nobody read. And yet I ended up there because I kept seeking further knowledge in something that I loved. I believe in always trying to do the thing that you're doing very well. That allows you to be very focused. Uh, so when I was special assistant to President George H.W. Bush, I tried to be the very best special assistant that I could be. I was with President Bush, of course, in 1990 when Gorbachev came to visit the United States, and he decided to visit California on that trip. And so President Bush called me into the Oval Office. He said, you know, Gorbachev is going to go out to Stanford. That's your home. I want you to take him. And so there we are sitting on Marine One, the presidential helicopter, on just Gorbachev and me. And I thought, hmm, glad I changed my major. Right call. I have a very strong belief that preparation counts, that you do have to work hard, but that it also matters where you are and who you meet and being in the right place at the right time. And so you should never, ever take for granted what you're given and what you've been able to achieve. You should never assume that it was just through your own smarts and because you were so much better than everybody else that you got there. There are so many people who were as good as you were, maybe even better, who never quite made it to that place. And I try very hard to remember that I've been, I've been good, but I've been lucky and fortunate and blessed too. There is no doubt September 11th is one of those days that will be forever seared on our consciousness. 
we all remember where we were, what we were doing, and most important, what we were feeling. And we all remember that day from our point of view. Imagine what it was like to be the national security advisor on that day. The shock that comes when you find out that this is an attack and it is your job to keep the country safe. You are the security advisor. How do you get through something so horrific? There's no precedent in the United States and no rules or handbook to lean on. As much as I believe intellectually, we did everything we could from what we knew to prevent such an attack, there's always a little piece of you that says, maybe there's more I could have done. September 11th is one of those days that every American remembers where they were. But if you were in a position of authority, it was a day that uh, made every day after September 12th. On the day of September 11th, it was like any other Tuesday morning. I was at my desk. It was a little odd in that President Bush had gone down to Florida for an education event. And usually, either Steve Hadley, the Deputy National Security Advisor, or I would have gone with him. But he was only going to be gone a few hours, so we decided, oh, he should just go with the a more junior staff member. And so my assistant came in and he said, a plane has hit the World Trade Center. I said, well, that's a strange accident. And I thought he meant a small plane. And then he said, no, it's a commercial jetliner. So I called President Bush and he said, that's a strange accident. And I said, yes. And he said, keep me informed. So I went downstairs and I was having my morning staff meeting and I would go around the table and I got to about the third person in and they handed me a note and they said a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. I thought, oh my God, this is a terrorist attack. I went into the communications center and I was trying to reach the other National Security Council principals. The uh, CIA director had already gone to the bunker there. Uh, Colin Powell was actually in Peru. And I couldn't reach Don Rumsfeld, and I looked behind me, and a plane had hit the Pentagon. And then there was a false report of a car bomb having gone off at the State Department, and right then the Secret Service came to me and they said, you have got to go to the bunker right now. And uh, they sort of sweep you up and they start to carry you along, and I said, I have to make a phone call. I actually called my aunt and uncle in Birmingham, and I said, there are going to be terrible pictures coming out of Washington. Tell everybody I'm all right. And I hung up. I didn't even wait for them to answer. And then I called President Bush, and I did something that I had never done before and I never did since, which was I, I raised my voice to the President of the United States. I said, stay where you are. He said, I'm coming back. I said, no, you're not. Washington's under attack. And I then went down to the bunker, and the Vice President was there. He was on the phone with President Bush. And he was getting authorization that if another plane was not responding properly, that the Air Force should shoot it down. And then suddenly a plane disappeared somewhere over Pennsylvania. And for an awful 15 minutes, we thought that we'd shot that plane down. I remember thinking at that moment how horrible it would be if indeed the American Air Force had shot down innocent civilians. But it was a necessary evil. During that whole time and everything that would transpire after, you learn that you're very often balancing. You're very often weighing unpalatable choices. It's not so black and white. 
it's not this is good and that's bad very often. Very often you have bad alternatives and you're trying to choose between them. Very often you're weighing competing values. If you're going to have a strike against a terrorist camp and that terrorist camp is embedded in a village where civilians might die, what do you do? Do you take out the terrorist camp knowing that they could kill 3,000 people as they did on September 11th? How do you weigh that against the innocent lives of civilians, some of whom may even be human shields for the terrorist? And so I learned in this incredibly difficult time, this crucible through which we went, that these things are rarely black and white. Faith helps because you pray for guidance. Don't think a really religious person prays believing to hear the voice of God tell you do this, not that. But you certainly hope that all of the belief that you've had and that you've held for all of those years is going to somehow come together to make you wiser in the choices that you are going to make. But those who tell you that uh, these decisions are black and white, there's a good and there's a bad, sometimes, sometimes if it's a taking of innocent lives by a terrorist who just is going to do it because wants to make a political point, yeah, that's just bad. That's just evil. There is no compromise there. But very often you find yourself weighing hard, hard decisions where it's not so black and white. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. What struck me during the entire period after September 11th is the degree to which the common values of Islam, Judaism, Christianity really come to the fore and you realize the degree to which the terrorist and the violent people are outside of those common values. I don't care whether it's Muhammad or Moses or David or Jesus Christ. There have been followers who have used those names to their own ill purposes. September 11th taught me that there are people in the world who, it's rather harsh to say it, if you don't get them before they get you, you'll suffer. It's the hardest thing about this terrorist fight. We don't have an option to let them commit the crime and then punish it afterwards. Quite literally, we have to get them before they get us. My parents are really, uh, again, the reason that I think I'm a very decisive person and that I am a decision maker and I don't mind taking decisions. When I was a little girl, I was about four years old, I became president of the family. We had an election every year, but it was by secret ballot and there were no term limits. So I got elected year after year because I had my mother's vote. I don't know about my father's vote. But they really did concoct this idea so that I would literally call a family meeting 
so we could decide what time are we leaving for the trip to New York tomorrow, or so that we could decide what color are we going to paint the new living room. I think it was a wonderful way of giving me a role in the family in terms of decision making. So it was very empowering to use an overused word. And from very early on, I learned those lessons. I taught a course called Challenges and Dilemmas in US Foreign Policy. I said to my students, there have been a few challenges and dilemmas, and I was involved in a lot of them. You can think that some of the decisions that I was a part of were the most ridiculous or most stupid decisions that you've ever heard. But you'd better know what you're talking about, because I will welcome your opinions, but not your uninformed ones. I am absolutely grateful that there wasn't another attack in the seven and a half years that we were in office. But as I often say to people, we have to be right 100% of the time, and they have to be right once. I think I understand uh, from the inside how hard it is to make sure. And the lesson for me is that you need to give some slack, some understanding to people who are trying to make it work from the inside. I have had the chance to teach my students about uh, the decisions that we took in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and obviously about the issues of weapons of mass destruction. And the first lesson is that uh, intelligence is never perfect and it might in fact be wrong. The fact is in decision making, you don't always have all of the information that you want or need. Many of the decisions that we took were controversial and there was obviously another side. We took the decisions that we thought were best for the country under what I think were really quite extraordinary circumstances and frankly without a compass because no one had ever been through what we went through. There is no doubt that there are many things that we could have done differently than Afghanistan in Iraq. It's the nature of big, complex operations that you're going to do some things well. You're not going to foresee some things. It's kind of interesting to me that people say, well, you didn't plan. Well, we planned and planned and planned. Sometimes we planned on the wrong assumptions, that the Iraqi society was going to hold together and you'd have in place ministries that could run the affairs of Iraq once you'd gotten rid of the top leadership, and that didn't hold. If I had it to do over again, I would try and build Iraq from the outside in rather than from the inside out, meaning I wouldn't focus so much in Baghdad, focus more in the provinces. We could have used the tribal structures better, as we finally did in 2007. I think the military learned how to fight a counterinsurgency strategy, meaning you had to live among the population and protect the population and they would come over to your side rather than just trying to destroy every last uh, terrorist without the support of the population. So there are many, many lessons and those are fair criticisms. But I found it really completely objectionable and I was really angry by people who imputed ill motives to those who were making those decisions that somehow we wanted to lead the country into war, therefore we concocted ideas about uh, what Saddam might have done or this or that. Uh, nobody wants to go to war. Nobody in their right mind wants to go to war. And so when decisions are taken, at least give somebody the benefit of the doubt that perhaps they took them for the right reasons and with the right motivations, even if you don't agree with them. So at the beginning of my class, I told my students, never forget how hard it is to make complex decisions 
when you don't have all the information that you'd like, but you don't have the luxury of not making a decision. When I was provost of Stanford, I went to a concert here at Stanford by the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And he said, oh, you play the piano, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, we'll play sometime. And I thought, yeah, sure, we'll jam, you and I, we'll, we'll do that. And he called me when I was back in the White House as National Security Advisor. My secretary comes in and she says, Yo-Yo Ma is on the phone for you. I said, you mean the cellist? And he was going to receive the National Medal of the Arts. And he wanted to play something with me. And we played for 2,500 people at Constitution Hall one uh, evening. And I thought that's even more confirmation that it was a good thing to change your major because don't be confused. You're not playing with Yo-Yo Ma because you're a great pianist. You're playing with Yo-Yo Ma because you're the national security advisor. So I've gotten the best of both worlds. I got to pursue international politics and do it at the highest level, and I got to play with Yo-Yo Ma. We have this facile way of talking about the world. We're all alike, we like to say. We're all human, so we're all alike. Well, actually, no, we're not. We're all very different. And that's the wonder of the world. That's what makes the world fun to know and to, to get to know. On, on the surface, we're alike. Underneath, we're actually very different. Now, the key has to be in international politics that difference isn't a license to kill. And that, too, makes the world of international politics both fascinating and a little terrifying sometimes. I always say that history has a long tail. And my career really allowed me to see two very important sets of events in that context. I was in the White House on 11-9 when the Berlin Wall fell. And I was in the White House on 9-11 when the terrorist attacks took place. Now, 11-9, the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that transpired after that, the policies that led to that were actually put in place in 1945 and 1946 and 1947. And while it was unbelievable to be the White House Soviet specialist at the end of the Cold War, I had to remind myself that we were really harvesting good decisions that Truman and Atchison and Marshall had taken back when actually things didn't look so bright. If at that time you had said, oh, by the way, communism is going to end in 40 years in Europe, there will be no communist states, people would have had you committed. And so I am able to see that that was the result, that wonderful outcome, the end of communism in Europe, was the result of 40 years of policy. And so if you fast forward for me to September 11th, I realized that we were at the front end of another big historical epoch. And I'll tell you, it's a lot more fun to be at the end of historical epoch than at the beginning. But that is the way that I believe that you have to see what is happening in Afghanistan, what is happening in Iraq, that these are events that will unfold over a long period of time and I've had the fortune to be at the end of an historical epoch and, I guess, the challenge of being at the beginning of one. After a monumental political career, Dr. Condoleezza Rice has returned to her first love, and that is teaching at Stanford University. And, as we've heard in this master class, she has plenty to teach. How to rise above adversity through devotion to excellence. How to have the courage to take risks, 
and perhaps above all, how to trust ourselves and our instincts. If we're following our passions, every decision will teach us how to be better at being ourselves, which allows us to be the master of our own lives. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.